Um, so welcome back. Um, professor is just going to continue for five, ten minutes and then we'll move to questions. Professor. Yes, just to finish off the <coughs> topic on time preference. Now you may have noticed that we are using two phrases here. One is time preference period and the other is marginal time preference. So I would like to comment on this and make the distinction clear. Um, Ludwig von Mises talks about time preference period, unqualified. But uh, the implication seems to be, and please feel free to criticize this if you don't agree, that we all have the same time preference, no difference. So Scrooge has the same time preference as the prodigal son in the parable of Jesus, the prodigal son who took his paternal inheritance and blew it and then he came home repentant. You see? So that, uh, these are really two extremes and uh, it's, it seems to me that the time preference of Scrooge is very, very different from the time preference of the prodigal son. And therefore, I would like to take issue with Mises and say, well, we have to come up with an idea of a unique time preference, because how can we talk about something which could be as widely dif different as the time preference of Scrooge in the Dickens novel and the time preference of the prodigal son in the parable. And uh, what you need is a kind of averaging, but it can't be a straight average. It cannot even be a weighted average, <coughs> giving some weight to the Scrooge, to the prodigal son, and some other weight to the ordinary people in between. What kind of averaging could it be? Well, there are lots and lots of different averages, but in economics, almost always the averaging is uh, using marginality or marginalism and the idea is something I think I mentioned yesterday I repeat it now that you line up all the people all the people that so this is a mental uh, construction but you line them up one to the next to the next to the next and rank them according to their time preference. Starting with the prodigal son going on with increasing time preference and the extreme time preference, the maximum is Scrooge who is uh, at the other extreme. 
So we rank people with their own time preference and then try, try to find the particular one who's playing the role at the moment. And that fellow will call the marginal saver, say, the marginal person. And his time preference is going to be called the marginal time preference. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this particular person is only a protagonist. Really, it's a role we talk about, not the individual, because it could change from moment to moment. Another person in this ranking will play the role of the marginal actor. Or it may not happen, and the same person may play the role for a whole week or some length of time when there are no great outside influences on the time preferences of people, you know. So I think this is an important distinction and it comes back in economics again and again and again when you define marginal productivity of labor it comes up we will have occasion to talk about this marginal productivity of capital or even the marginal productivity of social circulating capital there are lots of examples where we have to take an average but in economics, it's practically never an ordinary average or a weighted average or a geometric mean or harmonic mean or name any of this uh, very great choice which mathematics offers. It's none of those, but it's this particular idea of, that we derive from Menger's idea of marginalism. So how does it work in the case of a time preference? In practice, what does it mean that we talk about marginal time preference and how is it reflected in the rate of interest? And I think this is a very important example which will show you our whole approach to the problem of <laughs> economics and in particular monetary economics where it comes to money and the rate of interest in this country. So here's the thing. The rate of interest could vary, could go higher, could go lower. Suppose it reflects outside forces, some of them natural, some of them artificial. And among the artificial ones, of course, we know high on the list is government-motivated uh, interference of the banks, especially the central bank. And generally speaking, it's always to push the rate lower 
Why? Because that means pushing the value of government bonds higher, so the government will find it easier to borrow, and also they can use it for demagogic purposes. They can pretend that in pushing down the rate of interest, they are protecting the lower uh, strata of society, poor people, wage earners, or even unemployed people who might just have to borrow money to buy food or whatever. And therefore, the government appears as the great benefactor of society because it pushes down the rate of interest through, by hook or crook, through good means or bad means or mixed means. And uh, now the reality is very different because in reality this is what happens. So there are these outside forces including the government's influence on the rate of interest and there is on the other hand the rate of marginal time preference because this marginal time preference can be expressed as a rate a certain rate of interest. So we think of the, the actors, the economic actors, as being bondholders. Now it's true that the majority of people don't have bonds, but they may have a pension fund, and the pension fund would have the bond, or they may uh, have some kind of savings, whether in gold or something else, and we are, what we are suggesting here is that all this can be expressed in terms of bond holding. So let's just assume that this spectrum of people from one extreme to the other are all bond holders and we rank them according to time preference. Marginal, no, here it's not marginal. Everybody has his or her own personal time preference, from prodigal son to Scrooge, and everything in between. So we are somewhere. You, me, everybody is there somewhere, according to the personal my time preference. Now, as the interest rate varies under the force of outside uh, conditions, let's assume for the moment that it falls, then it might just fall below the rate of marginal time preference. Remember, marginal time preference is a unique number, it's just one number. Okay? At every moment in time there is a marginal bondholder and his or her time preference is what we call the, margin, the rate of marginal time preference. As soon as the rate of interest is pushed below that, something very interesting and very important is happening. What is happening? The marginal bondholder will find himself in possession of a bond which is overpriced in his opinion. 
It's overpriced because the rate of the yield on that bond is so low, lower than his own. So the price of the bond is high. And he will be tempted to sell this bond. I could put it even more dramatically. It's not just selling because it's an attractive high price, but he could do it as a protest. He doesn't like what the government is doing. He doesn't like what the central bank is doing in pushing down interest. He doesn't like the loose credit policies of the banks around him. And it's a protest vote on his part. He is going to sell his bond as a protest. And it's also very important what he does with the proceeds. Is he going to put the proceeds into wads of banknotes? No, he's not. He's not crazy. That would be jumping from the uh, frying pan right into the fire. Because banknotes are also future goods, just like his bond. That could be a gold bond. It's a future good. These could be gold certificates. Regardless, they are future goods. They are not present goods. Okay? So he will have to put his proceeds, what he gets from selling the bond, into present goods. Now what is the best choice for a present good? It's gold or silver, but let's just talk about one thing, gold. Okay? And this is very important. This is the exchange of present goods and future goods. The, the uh, focus is in that particular exchange. It's not exchanging a present apple for the future apple or exchanging uh, telescopes or what have you. It is specifically exchanging a gold bond, say, for gold. A future good is sold and the proceeds are put into a present good as a protest vote. Now, the government and the central bank may heed the message or they may not heed it. Let's assume they heed it. What does that mean? It means that they take the message. The message is that a number of people are unhappy with the credit policies of the banks and they are unhappy with the spending proclivities of the government. And they want them to rein in. And if they heed the message, they will rein in. And then credit conditions change uh, according to the wishes of the marginal bondholder. And as a result, the price of the bond comes down, which means interest rates go back up and then once more become higher than the, mar the rate of marginal uh, time preference. Okay? 
And at that point, the marginal bondholder repurchases his bond. And here's the thing. He makes money on it. He buys it back at a cheaper price. So he's well rewarded. He was just a plain protester carrying a sign that the government should change its policies or the central bank should do this or that. But he gets rewarded for doing the, the thing which he would do anyhow. And this is, this is how the system works. And this is particularly the type of exchange of a present good and future good and vice versa. We know there are all kinds of other exchanges, apples and oranges and everything else. But that is the thing right in the focus. That's what we should look at. The activity of the marginal bondholder and his activity of selling the bond when he is dissatisfied and buying it back when the government responds in his favor. So this is the new point of view about time preference. So I'm uh, now closing my lecture on that chapter, time preference, with this idea that rather than talking about present apples and future apples, which is, uh, you could have endless discussion and disagreement, which is not really important. The important example is the bond. The, in particular, let's, th let's think of gold bond on the one hand, and gold on the other, and the exchange, and the protagonist, the, the guy who is in the center of action, he is doing something. This is human action at its best. And as you know, human action is the title of the very famous book, an excellent book, and can recommend without any reservation of Mises, human action. One example, perhaps, even the most important example of human action is the action of the marginal bondholder in selling the bond when he's unhappy and buying it back when his wishes have been granted by the powers that be. Okay, with this I finish and then open for so the floor for questions. Questions? Questions? Any questions? No questions? No. No, well, if there's really no question, uh, I'd like to come back to the very beginning of the lecture this morning. Um, it's not directly an academic question, but more a historic question. You said that Thomas von Aquin um, basically revived the old uh, dogma of Aristotle um, that, there, uh, that there should be no interest in this world, basically. Um, is it not true that the Christians and maybe also the Muslims uh, could directly and literally refer uh, to the Bible and the Quran because there are actually really literal uh, prohibitions and indictments uh, of interest in there? Uh, I think the Muslims call it riba, and uh, well, I think there are also in the Bible some uh, passages where interest is really directly uh, forbidden, taking of interest. 
is, is this wrong? I, I, of course, I'm on academically <coughs> completely with you, and we need interest in this world. It doesn't work differently, but uh, this uh, argument comes up pretty frequently, um, uh, and therefore I'm not so sure whether we can really say that it is not a religious argument, uh, but basically uh, one based on Aristotle. Are you referring to the Sharia law? Well. Is there anyone here who could uh, give us a little talk, uh, sh very short, on the Sharia law? I, I don't feel competent on that um, question. Well, I'm a Hindu, but uh, I think that... Um, <laughs> There's no Sharia law. There's no Sharia law. <laughs> I don't think there are any laws. I think that you're just not allowed to charge... You're, you're, you're not allowed to charge interest up front but you put whatever you want as your little cut as a discount you know so you say well you want to borrow a million dirhams so well you're actually borrowing you actually have to give me back or you're actually only getting 900,000 dirhams you know but you owe me a million so that would satisfy sharia that satisfies sharia law well that's, that's <laughs> yes that's a very obvious loophole. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. But that's that's the way that they got around it, you know. So So they do get around it. They do get around it, yeah. Yeah. And they never admit that actually it's mm. a subterfuge. Mm. Well, um I think that um I don't know. I mean Aristotle I I I would have thought that St. Thomas Aquinas, um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't comment. They <laughs> uh, used to refer to it as like a fair rate of interest. Mm -hmm. So what you would have um, like around the 16th and 17th centuries with you, um, and after the Calvinists, you have these sort of imposed low interest rates. Mm -hmm. And if you had low interest rates, there would need to be not be usury. And therefore, and that's how it is slow. Like they slowly wrangled um, uh, the justification uh, for interest rates over time. It's like a very, very slow process. Does that sort of explain? Uh, it explains how the church ultimately got rid of the dogma. But uh, the way I understood that, at least Aquinas um, uh, was completely against interest. Is that correct? Um, I think. I think he complicated the problem more <laughs> because I mean yeah no no he like inherited the sort of like Aristotelian tradition mm -hmm. but um, to, I, I can't I can't no, I can't answer that question but I, I know it's not a, a topic for academics here and I think we all agree that uh, the work the capital markets do not work without interest but it, 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 this topic comes up so frequently in so many practical discussions and there are a lot of um, opponents against any type of interest interest out there that we maybe should clarify those historic questions too. Um, thanks. But that's fine. That's fine. Uh, any more comments? Any questions? Well, I think in the case of uh, the Catholic Church, um, the uh, the prohibition has been uh, revoked. Mm. It's it's now uh, official church doctrine that uh, perhaps they don't call it a mistake, but uh, but they admitted that in fact it was wrong. 
The similar thing is the Galileo. Uh, Galileo. <laughs> Galileo. The church. It's not advertised very wisely, very widely, but it is admitted, and if you look it up, you'll find it that the church actually apologized quite a few hundred years later <laughs> for condemning, condemning the elderly, uh, elderly Galileo for stating uh, that the uh, center of the universe is the earth and the sun is circling around the earth and uh, forcing the old man to recant because he did right he, uh, Galileo at one point under pressure from the Inquisition withdrew his doctrine and he said no no he was wrong assuming that the center is the sun and the earth is in spite of the telescopes he developed telescopes which showed very clearly the moons of Jupiter several moons of that they were circling around Jupiter and uh, there were other proofs as well. So, you know, the record is clear. As I say, it may not be very widely advertised, but it's, it's admitted that it was a mistake, which is actually, uh, it goes to the credit of the church, that the church has the moral fortitude to admit the mistakes if uh, there are mistakes may take a long time but ultimately the truth will come out so I uh, I think that is the official situation and the same concerning usually laws yeah. okay um, any any more uh, questions yeah, I'd like to have a definition actually on wealth and income. You said it's, this is not the place here to elaborate on this, but I'm interested in it because I can't really grasp what's, what's so new about this concept. I mean, nobody would doubt, or at least in the audience, will be promised, uh, that somebody who has no capital but a good idea needs to borrow capital, and that's legitimate. And so there was capital and credit. So what's so you about the concept of wealth and income, could you define and elaborate on this? You said earlier that you were, this wasn't the place to, de to define specifically what wealth and income are, but what, um, what, what is so new in the concept I mean, that the, sort the of... most denominated in money, is <coughs> I mean, I get income, like in gold, coins or what the money is, and I have capital, and that's gold too. And so this one who has capital, who has money, loans it to somebody who has it not. So that's, well, that's an old concept, and, and uh, <coughs> it's not doubted. So what's new about the dichotomy, dichotomy of, uh, of wealth and income? I, I, could you define, because I abstain from defining these two terms, could you define that? Do you, do you want to... Uh, well, income is a stream. It's a, it, it's it's there every year. Wealth is not a stream. Or, or even every week, like a laborer, laborer gets paid every week. A, a civil servant gets paid every month. But that's an income stream. Yeah. And I remember during the hyperinflation in Hungary, my father was paid twice a day. 
in the morning and at noon time because the money lost its value so fast <laughs> you know yeah, but, but what's what's the point I mean what you want to say is we need to there need to be a, a, a link or whatever it, it should be possible that wealth could be transferred into income and income into wealth uh, the, uh, the reason I explained was that you we are humans and we have to consume to live we would die if we didn't consume. So the, the ultimate uh, aim, the, uh, the end, ultimate ends we are talking about here, is to survive. Because before we survive, we can't talk about anything else. So uh, we need income. But as a means to income, Wealth is very important and almost indispensable because... What's the difference between wealth and capital? Oh, no, capital is a more uh, uh, a special type of wealth which is applied in, in production or in trade or, or something. But wealth is so general that everybody who has no idea about business or trading or producing or distributing just wants to survive. Even the most humble beggar needs capital because he would have to prepare for winter because in winter he cannot be so efficient in bagging in the street because he gets cold and he has to warm his... Uh, so, and, and there may not be so many passerbys who will drop a coin in his hat. So uh, he needs some wealth. That's contradiction. You may not like this idea, but that's a fact. Even a, a most humble beggar or, or even take a hermit who is in a cave, completely isolated from society, eating roots, like the time of time of Athens, uh, or, you know, he needs capital because there is winter and summer and obviously it's easier for him to get food in the summer than it is for the winter. Well even birds need capital or squirrels need, or bees or ants must have capital in a, in a uh, stretching the meaning of the word but we are talking about humans here really. A capital is something that you have. I, no, no, no. Yeah, or, or take the word savings. But what, what I want is because you drew our attention, uh, attention to this dichotomy. And so I wonder what's new about this. Just new words, wealth, instead of using the word uh, in, uh, uh, capital or the word um, uh, savings. Well, if it's not new, then it's old. I, I don't quarrel with that. Can I, can I address the truth? If you gather capital bit by bit through saving, you do it on your own. Mm -hmm. If you want to grab it in one lump sum from somebody else, yes, it's a loan. Why would they give you a loan unless you paid them interest? They shouldn't. They should, you should well, that's the whole point. If there's no interest, no, they're, they're not grab it. There's I, no I, I thought I missed the point, but uh, okay. yeah, this, the message. It's as simple as that. Okay, then I got it. 
And before, if, when, the, when the, the law was against interest, mm -hmm. people had to find a way around it. I, I thought I missed the point, but if this is the story, I'm But I think, if, if I can add something, it shifts the focus away from present good for future good. Mm. It shifts the yeah. focus away from that towards exchanging wealth and income. Not that the concept of wealth is new, not that the concept of income is new, but that focusing on this exchange rather than this imaginary exchange of present good for future good, which is not what a loan is. Um, I actually keep questioning, every time I hear the word future good, I keep questioning, is this an imaginary term? What does future good mean? There's a promise to, to provide a future good, a promise to provide a good in the future, but a future good yeah. does not exist. Yeah. You can't create something that exists <laughs> something that doesn't exist. And so that's what this is questioning and, and shifting the focus towards something which is very real and very tangible. I have income, Sandeep has wealth, we can have a trade. I, th I think you hit the nail right on the head. This is, yeah, to, to dramatize that switch of ideas away from present good versus future good, we emphasize income and wealth. If there's a better way to make the switch, fine. But I found this very convincing. So I think if we could you uh, talk about the differences between the marginal time preference rate theory and uh, the national, uh, the natural uh, interest rate of Bloom-Bawerk and the capitalist theory of Hayek, and therefore uh, your connection between the interest rate and gold. Might be I difficult have, before I lunch. Well, and, this uh, is coming. This is coming. I, uh, okay. Following uh, there is going to be uh, the marginal productivity of capital, and then we can return to your question at that time. We uh, we discussed half of the problem, and the other half we'll have to discuss before we can review the two together. So we will be back on that question. Um, any, any more quick questions? No, I think, I think that's it. Okay, that's it. So uh, we'll break up for lunch and back at four o'clock. Thanks very much, Professor. Thank you.